Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial facing a crowd of over 250,000 assembled that day for the March on Washington for Freedom and Jobs. This is how King began his famous I Have a Dream speech that afternoon. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today 
that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, King drew his listeners back to 1863. Five score years ago, he said, the biblical score being 20 years, this takes us back a century to 1863 when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And in that same year, Lincoln had begun his most famous speech, delivered at the battlefield of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, by saying, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And if you count back four score and seven from 1863, you arrive at 1776. It's in 1776 that the Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. That document began by affirming, as a self-evident truth, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. But in 1963, King says, black citizens in the United States are still not free. American life is crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. He then appeals back to the founding and to the Declaration of Independence. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check, he says. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned, King concluded that day. 
And so King stood before the Lincoln Memorial asking the nation to make real the promises of democracy. Within these first five paragraphs are packed questions of immense importance for us as we study constitutional rights this semester. One question is whether King was right about the Declaration of Independence. Was it a promissory note to which all Americans, truly, all Americans were to fall heir? Was he right to link the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? Did the Constitution, written 11 years after the Declaration, seek to make real its ideals? Or is that just effective political rhetoric on King's part, designed to move hearts and minds but unmoored from the historic reality of those documents? And what does it mean exactly to make real the promises of democracy? What does democracy promise other than what the word literally means, that the people rule? Is there more to it? Does democracy rest on a substantive moral vision that's not the product of majority will? Are there some things that even majorities may not do without forfeiting their right to be called democratic? How do we reconcile those two ideas? that the majority rules on the one hand, and yet there are things the majority shouldn't do. To the extent that the Constitution protects individual rights, and thereby puts limits on the power of majorities, how does it go about that task? Are constitutional rights simply willed into existence by a majority, or are they founded in reason and in nature, as many of the American founders, Lincoln and King, seemed to think? Does it make sense to talk of natural rights, that governments do not create, but that justice nonetheless demands governments recognize? These are hard questions, and there are no easy answers. We'll spend our semester thinking through them together, beginning with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, then moving to the first ten amendments to the Constitution, what we now call the Bill of Rights, then to the Reconstruction Amendments proposed by Congress and ratified by the states after the Civil War, and particularly the Fourteenth Amendment, which prohibits states from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or denying to any person the equal protection of the laws. And it's there where we'll settle in for most of the semester, considering what these phrases mean and have been interpreted to mean by our Supreme Court and by other influential actors in American politics who have shaped how we understand the Constitution, its principles, and its demands. One of those influential actors working outside of the Supreme Court and outside of any elected office was Martin Luther King, who, along with many others, undertook the practical work of reconciling majority rule with minority rights by shaping public opinion and helping to create the conditions that made the Civil Rights Act a reality the following year. His most famous speech points to where we'll begin next episode, with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the founding tensions between freedom slavery, and constitutional rights.